it's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. days these are the days we need him the most our chances are slim now it narrows the way not chosen by most this could be our last call there's no tomorrow for holding on to so let's hold on to the truth Perilous times have come There's already those in tribulation The fullness of times won't be long But lovers of self more than lovers of God and there's pride in the hearts of everyone We need to repent Turn from our ways And overcome as He overcame And if we're possibly lukewarm Then we have been forewarned We need to repent Turn from our ways and overcome as he overcame. And if we're possibly lukewarm, then we have been forewarned. These are the last days, and we've been condemned by our own disregard. What inhabits our hearts We're neither hot nor cold But in our own eyes the temperature's right Somehow we're living just right We claim we have need of nothing Yet we are poor, naked, wretched, and blind We must be out of our minds We need to repent Turn from our ways And overcome as He overcame And if we're possibly lukewarm Then we have been forewarned Our vision is impaired 
We're striving for gold that's everything but pure We should seek wider raiment that our nakedness does not appear To those who have an ear I hope that this is clear We need to repent Turn from our ways And overcome as he overcame And if we're possibly lukewarm Then we have been forewarned We need to repent Turn from our ways And overcome as he overcame And if we're possibly lukewarm have been forewarned message today is the one sermon of Jesus one sermon of Jesus pray Lord would you open the word to our hearts today and quicken us by our spirit refreshing us restoring, healing. Lord, thank you. I pray in your name. Amen. I've spent many hours this week just sitting before the Lord, praying, weeping. I tried to read the scripture yesterday. I sat for two hours before the Lord and got through four chapters by trying hard. My heart was just so convicted. We all have one great one great cross that stands before us, and that's the cross of self. My battle is not with you. My battle is not with the devil. The battle is with self. That's where the fight is. Self-importance. Can I be very straight? Self-importance that says, I'll get up this morning and I'll do this and this and this. I'll go here and there. Because I'm a winner. I've got it to do. I'm responsible. So filled with self-importance. I was sitting with my father many years ago. He went and got a glass of water. And he said, hold this, Ray. I held it. He put his finger in the water. And then he pulled his finger out. He said, have I changed the water? No, Daddy. I didn't understand. He said, did it matter if my finger was in the water or out of the water? The only difference was when my finger was in the water, the water was just a little higher in the glass. He said, Raymond, when I die, somebody else will begin to do everything that I'm doing that's important. And what's not important, no one will miss. He said, my life really doesn't make any difference if it's not hidden in Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who makes my life count for something. I can go through all of my life filled with myself, entertaining myself with fishing. He was a great fisherman, entertaining myself with working in the shop. He was a great fixer of anything. He said, I can do all kinds of things in my life, but in the end, all that will matter, how was I with Jesus? And did I let Jesus flow through my life in love to other people? Did I help other people on this journey toward heaven? 
Or did I just live my life for myself and my own selfishness? And then when I'm gone, I'm gone and nobody really cares that I'm gone. I never forgot that lesson, but I really did forget about it. Because somehow as I grew up and became somebody, and by the way, we've all grown up and become somebody, whether you like it or not. It's that being filled with self, the self-entertainment and the self-desires and the hunger to be somebody, the hunger to have my life the way I want it, to be able to do what I want to do with my time, not recognizing our time is not ours and our life does not belong to us. You have been loaned this precious gift of life for a very short amount of time. And during that short amount of time, God will decide whether you are found wanting, whether you deserve the gift of eternal life. And as God looks at your life and he judges you, he will determine whether he will extend forever and give you this gift forever, or whether he will call that gift back to himself and you will turn to dust and ashes. And you're determining that today and tomorrow and this week by how you act and what you do, what you say, where you go. If today Jesus put you on the balance and said, has this person met the requirements of God to enter into eternal life, would you enter in? Or would he put his hand up when you come to the door and say, I'm sorry, I don't know you. I think the devil knows you better than I do. So you need to go spend eternity with him. Boy, that whole concept just utterly rips away from me all sense of importance and lets it all rest with Jesus. He's the one who counts. I think we need to really examine carefully what the sermon of Jesus was. If he were standing here today, what would Jesus preach? Well, I think I can tell you with a great deal of confidence what he would preach. He gave his followers one sermon to preach. And I've been accused many times of, Pastor, you know what? You just preach one sermon. You just keep coming at it from a different direction. But finally, after I listen, I recognize you're just saying the same thing you've said every week for years. It's true. I just have one sermon in my repertoire. It's like the old revivalist went to camp meeting. Everybody was very excited to hear him. He stood up the first night and he preached his sermon with great power. And everybody said, whoa, that was a great sermon. The next night he came and he preached the same sermon with an equal amount of great power. And they said, he's getting old. He must have just forgotten that he preached that last night. Third night he came, he preached the same sermon. And finally, some of the elders went up to him and said, Sir, you recognize you preached the same sermon three nights in a row. And he said, Yes, sir. Well, when are you going to preach something else? When you get this one, when you get this one, I'll preach another one. Well, we still haven't gotten the first sermon of Jesus. So I'm going to keep preaching Jesus' sermon until we get it. So what's his sermon? Well, I'm going to take you to two passages of Scripture that will give you very clearly what his sermon is. The first passage of Scripture is actually what he's commanding us to preach in line with what he's already preached. 
Turn with me to the book of Luke, the 24th chapter, and there you find this is the risen Christ. Now, I should not do this. I have no justification for doing it. But I put more weight on the risen Christ's words than I do before he was crucified. Now, his word is his word. But I figure after he was crucified, he had full divinity operating and full wisdom operating. And so you get the full maturity of Christ. This is the risen Christ. Luke 24, verse 45. And I've been praying this scripture all week. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. I've been praying, Lord, would you open my mind so that I could understand your scripture? I read the scripture, feel like I don't get it. Any of you do that? You find yourself reading it over and over and saying, you know, I just don't get it, Jesus. I know there's something here, but I'm not getting it. I can't afford to live that way. I'm going to face the judge. I've got to get it. He opened their minds. Lord, open our minds so we can understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power on high. Now, God has times and seasons. God has a schedule for your life, and you can't push him to hurry it up. Sometimes I try. Lord, how long am I going to have to put up with this? When are you going to come and change this? And sometimes he wants me to do that because he wants me to put some skin in the game and stand on the promise and say, Lord, I've had it. And until I begin to stand on that promise and say, I've had it, I can't stand this anymore. God, you've got to come and rescue me. Like the importunate widow, where the widow kept going to the judge time after time after time. And Jesus said, the judge finally answers because he's going to get worn out exhausted by her coming. So this unjust judge says, I better answer the plea to get her off my, my case. God is not an unjust judge. But yes, he wants us to come and to come and to come. But there is in this process an understanding that there are times and seasons. And I can block what God wants to accomplish by not repenting by not allowing him to do the full work in my heart. One of the greatest sorrows of my heart is that I have taken so long to submit to Jesus. And then you finally come to a point in your life, unfortunately, where you say, if I don't submit now, when will I ever submit? I look in the mirror and see the age creeping up over my body, and I'm saying, I better deal with this. Because if I don't now, I'll never deal with it. Listen to what he says. This is what is going to be preached. Repentance 
and forgiveness of sin will be preached in his name. Repentance, obviously, we know the meaning. It means to make a sharp turn away. It means to go back and fulfill the requirements of God that we have been denying him and refusing to submit to. To repent means to be sorry and to say, I'm done with that sin. I'm done with that rebellion. I'm not going to go there anymore. I'm not going to accuse God anymore. I'm not going to be ignoring his word to me. I'm done. And we enter into a covenant with God. And we come under the everlasting covenant where we say, I am activating the everlasting covenant over this sin. I will not go back by the power of your blood. I'm not going to do it. I'm done. And we pray through that until in our spirits and in our hearts, we're clear it is done. We've changed. He changed us. He circumcised our heart. We can't do it. How many times I've tried to deal with a specific sin only to be swept away time after time after time and finally come to the recognition if Jesus doesn't do it, it's just not going to get done. But, of course, that requires my dying to my pride. It means I have to give up my self-importance. It means I have to stand by faith and put some skin in the game and say, Lord, please, please, I'm going to die if you don't take this. The first time, he'll take it very quickly. But if we go back and rebuild what he's destroyed, it'll be a little tougher the next time. Until finally, it's going to cost us blood because we've set the pattern of rebellion against Jesus. We've gone back time after time. Now to have that powerful sin broken, we've got to stop the devil from being able to go to the Lord and claim us and say, hasn't he said this to you before, Lord? Hasn't he said before that he wanted to leave this sin and you delivered him and look what he's done? And so he stands as the accuser of the brethren. And now the Lord has to let us be assayed. Saying means put you on the fire and see what gold is there. And is there truly conviction in your heart that says, yes, I want to be done with this. Yes, I submit. I humbly lay my life down. And then when Jesus is clear that you really mean it, he takes it. He does it. He removes it. But then it says repentance and forgiveness of sins. And that word forgiveness in the Greek is aphis. And it really doesn't mean forgive in the modern sense of forgive. It means to remove it. To remove it. You've all either had children or seen children. One child does something nasty to the other one. And mom and daddy make them face each other and say, now now tell sister you're sorry. And you forgive them? Yes, daddy, I forgive them. Till the next time, nothing's been removed. Just waiting for the next offense to go crazy again. No, when we come in this sermon that Jesus is saying, There is an absolute change of heart. There is a turning away. And then there is a total removal of that sin from our heart. I don't want to be just forgiven. I want to be made righteous. I want to be changed. That's what Jesus said would be preached in his name. That's my one sermon. But now let's go to where Jesus preached that sermon. 
Again, it's the risen Christ, and it's found in Revelation, the third chapter. These are the words of the Amen, verse 14. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, he begins, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. I know what your behavior is. I know that you're not cold or hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, that is tepid, just getting along. No fire, no power, no passion, just getting along. Neither hot nor cold. I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize. And again now as review. Wretched, again two Greek words, one meaning to be weighed with weights on the balance and to come up short, to be a lightweight with Jesus. The second one is to be pierced, harassment, to be assayed and found there's no gold. You're just cheap tinsel. That's what Jesus is saying to these people who are Christians. You're just a lightweight with lots of tinsel and and lots of music, but you're miserable. You just don't know it because you don't have the presence of the Holy Spirit. He says, you're pitiful. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked. And now he comes with recommendations. Please hear what I'm going to say to you. There is a progressive, step-by-step, coming into the fullness of Jesus. And if you try to move into the fullness of Jesus, but you haven't finished step number one, you're going to be like somebody in a math class who's finished the first level of math, and suddenly trigonometry is thrown in their face. And they say, what is this Greek? I don't know how to do this. Well, of course you don't because you've left all the steps out of your process. It's hard to watch a person who is so full of themselves that they stumble over themselves trying to be a Christian when they've never died. They have no spirit power in their life. They only have flesh power. It's a pathetic sight. One woman having a miserable time being a Christian, and the pastor said to her, Is it possible that you were never crucified with Christ? That you're trying in your flesh to be a follower of Jesus? And a great relief spread over her face, and she said, You mean I'm not supposed to be able to do this? Well, no, you're not. In fact, you can't do it. You will be utterly miserable if you try to be a Christian and you've never died. You have to die before you can begin the process. You can't live in two bodies. So a person will stand off and they'll study the Christian faith. They may even go to church and they'll try to do a little self-improvement. Okay, you mean to be a Christian? I'm, I'm not supposed to do this and I'm not supposed to do that. So I'll start working on that. And I talk to people and I say, are you a Christian? Yes. Well, is there anything standing between your heart and Jesus? Yes, but I'm working on it. They just told me I'm not a Christian. Because Christians don't work on it. Christians die. Christians die. When you're dead, God can begin to move and bring resurrection power into your life. And today, if you're struggling with trying to be a Christian, I urge you, stop trying to be a Christian. That's not how you become a Christian. 
You become a Christian by dying to your flesh and saying, okay, I can't do it. I'm done. I'm cooked. And to do that requires that I give up all my expectations. I give up my ambitions. I give up everything. And I enter into that grave where I'm dead. And now I ask Jesus, please come and give me new life. And he comes and begins to give us new life. And it's totally radical. It's transformational. We can't stay the same. Everything is now shifted. We're changed. The rebellion is gone. The bitterness is dealt with. The anger is dealt with. We're new creatures in Christ. The sign that you have been born from above is that you have the ability to say no to temptation and sin. If you cannot say no to the sin, it's because you've not died yet. You've not been born again yet. You have to die. Then the no comes out of the spirit of Jesus. And you can say, no, I'm not going to go there anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. This, the Christian faith is not a do-it-yourself deal. It's not self-improvement. It's dying. And then everything that comes into my life belongs to Jesus. Business opportunities, loving relationships, everything flows to me. Jesus is not a thief. He doesn't want to steal your joy and your happiness. He wants to give to you life, abundant life. So there are times and seasons, and you have to step into what God is calling you into right now in the season where God has you. I counsel you, buy from me. What is the coinage with which we buy from God? Absolute total surrender of our hearts to him. That's the coin we use to buy, giving up ourselves and our expectations and our demands. We buy by surrender, by consecration. I counsel you, buy from me gold refined in the fire. And we've spoken about this as being faith, being tested, being tried. Our brother was tested and tried with this job. The Lord kept coming to him and saying, do you want this job? I'm grateful he didn't just in his own flesh reach out and say, yes, I want this. It's my way out. No, it's not. It's your place to die. God's going to place you there and use you for his kingdom and his glory. So don't get an idea. This is my way out. I'm now satisfied. I'm fat and happy. No. I mean, Sam's testimony. What an awesome testimony that that he's got $8,000 on the line. Will you cheat to get that business deal? And he said no and confronted the man. And the man's so ashamed, he says, you're right, I'm not going to do that. You know what he would have done with that. He would have transferred some of the money to the customer, and he would have collected that from the customer, and he could prove that it cost that much because the receipt said it cost that much. And he would have gotten his television for a real discount. He's a smart man, right, in the flesh, but a cheater and a liar. And liars have no place in the kingdom of God. So there was a godly man to stand in the way of his running into hell. I praise God there was a godly man there to stop him from his mad rush into hell. And I'm grateful that that Sam doesn't work there for money. He works there for Jesus. We are tested and tried in the fire to see if we will seek our own 
or if we will seek Jesus. Secondly, and this is where I want to focus for a few minutes, buy white clothes to wear so that you can cover your nakedness or your shame. Sin causes shame. Always sin uncovers us. On the converse, righteousness always covers us over and removes our shame. Brokenness, fighting, bitterness are all products of sin. Selfishness, demanding my own way, yelling at God, impatience, anger with God. It all comes out of a sinful heart, out of a heart that refuses to die and submit to the presence and the will of our Father. I'll tell you what's most difficult. When you know what you want, you know what you need, and the way is blocked, then how do you respond? I was taught if the way is blocked, you know what you want, you just have to bolster up your courage and find a way around, under, over, or through. Let nothing stop you. Go for what you want. You're a winner. Full of self. I can't walk that way anymore. Partly because I know what I want, I can't produce. And I've finally given up all hope of my being able to create it. What I want, above all else, is the power of the Holy Spirit to bring forth revival in America. I weep for America, for the wickedness of this nation. I can't change that. I have to also be honest with you. Sometimes I get upset driving a 1996 Toyota when I see most of you all driving these beautiful cars. And I say, how long do I have to drive my 1996 Toyota? So part of where rebellion is in my heart, guys, we're being absolutely straight. Part of where rebellion has been in my heart and this morning when I went and got in this car, The Lord rebuked me. I'll tell you what he did. When the car was given to me, I took it to have it washed and waxed, and it was beautiful. But a year ago, I haven't washed it since. And I haven't vacuumed it since because I don't like driving it. And the Lord said, I gave it to you, and I'm not going to give you another one until you take care of this one. Oh, I take care of it mechanically. I get the oil changed. I get new tires on it. I have the brakes taken care of. Mechanically, everything is perfect. But why in the world would I want to wash this old car? (laughs) So I can tell you what's going to happen before next Sunday. When I come next Sunday, that car is going to be spotless, inside and out. I'll even put a bow around it and say, I love you. Because Jesus said, I'm not going to give you another one until you take care of this one. And I got in it this morning, and I have to tell you this. There were times when I treated another car this way, when Jan was with me. And I came out of the house, and I found her out in the back of the house with a hose, washing the car. I said, Jan, that's my job. And she said, well, why aren't you doing it then? That was the word of the Lord to me. Why aren't you doing it then? Well, because I didn't like it. I didn't like my car. I didn't respect what I had. Now, maybe none of you have ever thought or acted like this. 
Don't look so sober. Your face gives you away. There are times and seasons. A new car is in God's season. A different car is in God's season. Right now, he just wants me to be faithful with what he's given and to be grateful to him with praise and honor and care. But you know when we get mad in our spirit about something, but we're not allowed to be mad, and so we just act like it's not there. We ignore it. We're indifferent. I would challenge you to look at what you are indifferent to and ask if it's possible that that indifference is reflecting an anger, a root of anger that's in your heart about your situation, and you can't change it, and so you'll just be indifferent to it. God knows whether it's anger that's white-hot rage or whether it's anger that's indifference. They're both anger. What Jesus is trying to say is that these white clothes that he wants us to wear, these righteous acts of the saints, according to Revelation 19, verse 8, these righteous acts, that's what he's waiting to have happen in our lives. In 1 Peter, the first chapter, he says in verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Wash your car. Do whatever he asks you to do. Witness. Testify that Jesus is Lord. Put away the disobedience in your heart. Repent and let him remove it from you. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. You know, one of the ways that I respond that's unholy, it's out of this indifference to, it really doesn't matter. I can take away the importance of it. It's indifference. It's ignorance. And ignorance, of course, is a wonderful excuse. I don't know. I don't know what God's doing. So I don't know what God's doing, so I've just got to go do what I have to do to get there. I don't know what he's doing. Well, you can find out what he's doing. Ask him and be prepared to submit to what he's going to ask you to do so that you're not ignorant anymore. Notice what it says, verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all that you do. And the word holy, hagios, in the Greek, means to be totally set aside specific purpose. I used to go to the refrigerator when Jan was alive, hungry, wanting something. And I'd open the refrigerator door, and there would be a favorite food of mine. And there would be a little written sign, a sticker, that would say, holy. And I knew that meant she had made that for a special purpose. And if I touched it, I was dead. It was holy. It wasn't for me to snack on. To be holy means to be set apart for a very specific purpose. He's saying, I want you to be holy, that you are not here to serve the world, the flesh, and the devil. You are not here to have your own ideas and your own thoughts and create your own reality. You are here set apart for the purpose of God to accomplish what he desires to accomplish in the world. And that which he desires is to call all men to repentance. That's his desire. 
and then to teach all that the sin of their life can be totally removed. They can be made clean. They can be delivered and set free. That's the sermon of Jesus Christ. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you, are call, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. So tomorrow when I get up, the Lord God of heaven is expecting that whatever season I'm in, that I will do everything from the perspective of I choose to be holy before God. I'm not running my own agenda. I'm not running my own deal. I am here to be holy before God, set apart for his kingdom, to be filled with his spirit, all men and women, by my actions, to integrity, to righteousness, to holiness. It's going to sound simplistic, but it's not. It's very deep. Everything about Jesus is to call us as his people to be righteous. That's the deal. Righteous simply means innocent. He's called us to leave behind our sin and to be innocent before him, not filled with our own lust, not filled with our own agenda, but totally on that cross, coming through the cross into a life of absolute dependence upon Jesus because he's everything. He's the love of the universe. This planet is the only planet in the universe that is a prison planet in rebellion against the Most High where we say, no, we will do what we want. We will go our own way. And we have this very short season when we can make a decision about whether we will meet his requirement, and lay our lives down and be found worthy of entering into eternal life. And there's only one way you'll be found worthy, and that's by the righteousness of Jesus being imparted into your life, being given to you. It doesn't mean I'm right. It means Jesus is right. And when I begin to think that I'm right, you know I'm wrong, not God. I'm called to submit and to lay my life down and let Jesus be lifted up. And it's about righteousness. Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Verse 18, for you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all the glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, 
but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. This is the word. Now, each of you has had the Holy Spirit working in your conscience, and you know whether you're still in rebellion against the Lord Jesus. You know by your actions this past week. You know whether rage and bitterness and quarreling has risen in your heart. You know whether you have taken a stand for righteousness and holiness. You know what your life is before Jesus. And the call of Jesus is to understand the reality now of righteousness and enter into it and not withhold, not demand that I have my own way, but humble my heart before Jesus out of love for him because he loves us. The motivation for righteousness is to be like Jesus, to be filled with his presence, to know the joy of having all of the load of guilt removed from our heart, the load of responsibility removed from our spirit, the crushing burden of our finances removed from our hearts, the crushing burden of broken relationships removed from our heart, the broken bitterness that springs up so quickly in self-defense removed from our hearts to be free in Jesus. I know when I'm not on the right path because the peace of God is stolen from my heart. When the peace of Jesus is removed from my heart, I know I'm into a battle. And that peace is not restored until I've prayed through and I understand and I'm submitted. And now I join together with Jesus against the powers of darkness that's trying to block my way and deceive me and tell me that Jesus doesn't care and that he's not fair and he's not just. I only want to stand in one place, and that's on Jesus' side. I don't want Jesus over here and the devil over here and me in between trying to determine which one's right. Jesus is always right. So let's get with him on his side. And then we stand together with Jesus in faith and prayer against the power of darkness that's trying to confuse us and steal from us. Confusion always comes from the devil, never comes from Jesus. Bitterness always comes from the devil. Accusations always come from the devil. Attitudes against always come from the devil. Judgments and criticism of our wives or our husbands or our friends always comes from the devil. Wives, don't be telling your husbands what they're supposed to do. I saw something yesterday that I almost intervened. I might have gotten into fire if I'd intervened, but I was... I was sitting with my brother, Ed. We were having a coffee together in Springfield at the Barnes & Noble. And I don't know if he noticed. We didn't talk about it, but I couldn't keep my eyes on him. My eyes kept going to a couple behind us. He was sitting there with a bored look on his face trying to read a magazine. And she was talking at him a mile a minute. And he would grunt occasionally to say, I'm listening, honey. But he wasn't listening at all. He'd had it. And she sat there and pouted for a while. Then she reached out and took his magazine. And then they had a fight and left. I think God gives us husbands and wives just to expose what's in our hearts. And husbands, don't be telling your wife what to do. Let Jesus tell her. Husbands, the wife is supposed to submit to you, right? Well, I think they have the easier of the two jobs. Because the scripture says you're supposed to lay down in your life and die for your wife. I'd rather submit to someone than die for them. 
but God's given it to we who are men to die for our wives. And it's not quick and easy. Please understand what I'm saying, that God brings all kinds of circumstances into our lives to weigh us in the balance, to test us, to assay us. And when we've passed the test of that season, he can then move us to the next. In this Revelation passage, if you have never been stretched and passed the test of faith, you're not ready to deal with righteousness. The scriptures tell us that righteousness is for the mature, not for those who need the milk. Well, some of you have needed the milk almost all your life. It's time to grow up. He can't take us to the third part of bringing the power of the Holy Spirit into our lives until we have passed the test of faith, and then we've passed the test of righteousness, and then he's prepared to bring the fullness of the Holy Spirit into our life. And I hear Christians saying, oh, we need revival. No, it's a dangerous thing to ask for because the first thing he's going to deal with is repentance and conviction of sin. And he's going to test you in the fire. And then he's going to talk to you about righteousness. And when he's finished with that, he'll bring the Holy Spirit in power. You can see I'm not through this issue of righteousness yet because he hasn't brought the Spirit in power to me. We're all in this process. But I don't want to slow God down anymore. I don't want to take for granted that he loves me and will always put up with my foolishness. I want to grow up in righteousness. So today we've come to the communion table of the Lord. The shed blood is there to remove our sin, to forgive us, to pardon us, to make us holy. And the bread is there to give us strength for the journey so that we don't blow out. We trust him. Now, I don't know where you're at. Some of you are in the midst of being tested with finances. Some of you are being tested with your husband or your wife. Some of you are being tested in other areas at work where you've made decisions and now you recognize you really stepped in it. Some of you are past the testing and you have full confidence in Jesus. And now you need to cry out to God for the gates of righteousness to be opened in your life. And I pray that some of you receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit before I do. You know how I would rejoice if you receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit? I would not be jealous. I'd say, Lord, thank you. It's interesting to me that this wonderful story of Reese Howes, he's sent to Africa with a promise of revival. He was not the first to receive the Holy Spirit. It was a little girl in the village who was much more humble than Reese. And as they prayed for the Holy Spirit, it broke out in her life first. And that humbled him. And then the power of God came on his life. That seems to be a reoccurring theme at Azuzu Street, the lead pastor, praying for the fullness of the Holy Spirit, was the little girl who received it first, not William Seymour. God doesn't look at things the way we look at things. He doesn't count importance by the way we count importance. It's the little one who will humble themselves, who will walk in righteousness. They're the first to receive the Spirit of God. You know where you are in this journey. Pray that God will quickly bring you through and give you the victory. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. You can find us online at nationalprayerchapel.com or you can write to us at Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 
888-222-2195. God bless you. We love you.
my salvation whom shall I fear the Lord is my light my salvation whom shall I be oh 